wait a second, man. What do you think the teacher's gonna look like this year? All right, we are back. You know, we haven't done a, a pure joke in quite a while. I did hear one recently that I'm not sure completely passes muster, but I think I'm going to go with it. Snow White, Hercules, and Pinocchio are walking down the street. They pass a venue that says beauty contest. Snow White says, just a minute, and enters. She comes out a half hour later. How'd you do, say the guys. Oh, I won. Well, as expected, they say. They walk a little further and they see a sign that says, Strong man contest. Hercules goes, just a second. I'll be right back. Comes out a half hour later. How'd you do? Oh, I won. They walk a little further. They see a sign that says, World's Greatest Liar Contest. Pinocchio turns to them and says, All right, just a minute. I'll be right back. Half hour later, Pinocchio comes back out again. His nose is now six feet long, but he's crying. What happened? Asks Snow White. Pinocchio looks at the two of them and says... Who's this guy, Donald Trump? Anyway, working off the misery loves company theory, I think we probably should spend a moment or two and talk about what's going on down in Brazil. The current issue of The Economist has Jair Bolsonaro on the cover, casting a shadow on the wall behind him. The shadow bears an uncanny resemblance to Donald J. Trump. The cover story article is The Man Who Would Be Trump, with the subheadline Bolsonaro Prepares His Big Lie in Brazil. Before we delve into that story, we should cite an item that appeared in the press a couple weeks ago, which was that Jair Bolsonaro held an official military ceremony the beginning of the month, to welcome the embalmed heart of Brazil's first emperor, Pedro I, back to the country. Pedro was the son of Portugal's king, João VI. Pedro was the regent in Brazil when he declared Brazil's independence from Portugal in 1822 as a new empire. He then returned to Portugal to support constitutionalists struggling against the monarchy. After he died there, his heart was cut out and kept in Porto, according to his wishes, while his body was later sent back to Brazil. Bolsonaro requested that Portugal send the heart on a visit to coincide with Brazil's bicentennial occurring this month. Critics <laughs> said he was using the relic to pander to nationalists ahead of October's election, which he's projected to lose in a landslide. We, we can't even speculate over what good it will do to have... Pedro I's heart joined the rest of his body back in Brazil just before the election. Like Trump, Bolsonaro is a global warming denier. An article in the Week magazine from July noted that the pace of destruction of the Amazon rainforest had hit a new record this year. The Brazilian space agency said that satellite data revealed that more than 1,540 square miles were deforested just this year an area five times the size of New York City. This is partly because farmers clearing land for crops and livestock have been setting more fires. Remember all this talk about fires down in the Amazon? Well, a lot of those were set. The Amazon, of course, plays a critical role in absorbing CO2, and scientists fear at this rate it could lose up to 25% of its forests within a decade. We're entering 
The tipping point range, said Marcio Asnini of Brazil's Climate Observatory and Advocacy Group. Each additional amount of deforestation in the Amazon pushes us deeper into this irreversible scenario. They're talking about the possibility that the Amazon could become a CO2 net emitter rather than absorber. This, of course, does not worry Bolsonaro in the slightest. The editorial in The Economist notes that Bolsonaro, described as previously a foul-mouthed congressional gadfly, got elected president in 2018 on a wave of anti-establishment fury. To pull off this unlikely feat, he had learned tricks from another foul-mouthed, widely underestimated outsider. The most important of these was the skillful and mendacious misuse of social media. He remains Brazil's uncontested master of this and has thus convinced his supporters of two things. First, that if he loses, it is evidence that the vote was unfair. Second, that a win for his main opponent, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, would hand Brazil to the devil. In the parallel reality that Mr. Bolsonaro has constructed, President Lula would shut down Brazilian churches, turn the country into a narco state, and encourage boys to wear dresses. Well, apparently he stopped short of claiming that Luis de Silva would make people wear their underwear outside their clothes. Eh, but there still is some time before the election. Noted the economist, this is nonsense. Lula is a pragmatic leftist and was a fairly successful president between 2003 and 2010. Buoyed by a commodities boom, he presided over rising incomes and a big expansion of the welfare state. The boom collapsed after he left office and his successor and protege, Dilma Rousseff, was impeached amid a vast corruption scandal dating back years. Lula himself was found guilty of taking bribes, though his convictions were later thrown out and he denies wrongdoing. In short, he is far from the ideal candidate, but he is squarely within the realm of the normal and he's a supporter of democracy. Mr. Bolsonaro, by instinct, is not. For his part, Bolsonaro has said that he will accept the election result if it is clean and transparent, but he keeps suggesting that it will be neither. I did have to chuckle at the doppelganger demagogues panel they had embedded in the article that compared Bolsonaro and Trump, saying, cast doubt on integrity of election. Bolsonaro, yes. Trump, yes. Peddles extravagant lies about opponents. Bolsonaro, yes. Trump, yes. Stokes fears, tells supporters they are victims. Bolsonaro, yes. Trump, yes. Offensive, in a way, supporters mistake for sincerity. <laughs> Bolsonaro, yes. Trump, yes. Incites violence, they both get a yes. Boasts about attractiveness of latest wife, they both get a yes. There are two differences. Served in military, Bolsonaro, yes. Donald Trump, bone spurs. And... Vaccinated against COVID-19. Trump, yes. Bolsonaro, no. The Economist says the worst outcome after the Brazilian election could be a coup. Unlike in America, where the army's professionalism is beyond question, in Brazil, a putsch is not unthinkable. The country is awash with coup chatter. In private, some senior politicians do not rule out the possibility. In August, police raided the homes of several Bolsonarista businessmen who had allegedly been discussing the merits of a putsch on WhatsApp. Those businessmen say they were just grumbling and police had no business raiding their homes. Brazil last had a coup in 1964. And Mr. Bolsonaro often praises the old military regime. He scrupulously protects the military's perks as included 6,000 officers in his government. The article quotes a Venetia of King's College in London saying, a coup is unlikely. 
The armed forces have evolved since 1964. They still meddle more in politics than they should and have aired doubts about the security of the voting system, but they know that if Bolsonaro loses, there will be another government and they will have to work with it. That's what he says. The Biden administration, for its part, has made it clear that a putsch would make Brazil a pariah. We really like that word putsch, by the way. It means they secretly planned and suddenly executed an attempt to overthrow a government. Kind of like what Hitler did in Bavaria back in 1923, and kind of like what Trump did on January 6th. And let's talk a little bit about the possibilities of a coup in America. Wonderful article in the August 15th edition of The New Yorker by Susan B. Glasser and Peter Baker, entitled Trump's Last General. The subheadline is, how did the Pentagon handle the national security threat posed by its own commander-in-chief? This is worth quoting from. The article starts out, in the summer of 2017, just after half a year in the White House, Donald Trump flew to Paris for Bastille Day celebrations. President Macron staged a spectacular martial display to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the American entrance into the First World War. Vintage tanks rolled down the Champs-Élysées as fighter jets rolled overhead. The event seemed to be calculated to appeal to Donald Trump, to his sense of showmanship and grandiosity, and he was visibly delighted. The French general in charge of the parade turned to one of his American counterparts and said, you are going to be doing this next year. Sure enough, notes the article, Trump returned to Washington determined to have his generals throw him the biggest, grandest military parade ever seen for the 4th of July. His generals, to his bewilderment, reacted with disgust. I'd rather swallow acid, his defense secretary, James Mattis, said. Struggling to dissuade Trump, officials pointed out the parade would cost millions of dollars and tear up the streets of the Capitol. The Trump notes that the article notes the divide between Trump and his generals was also a matter of values of how they viewed the U.S. itself. That was never clearer than when Trump told his new chief of staff, John Kelly, like Mattis, a retired Marine Corps general, about his vision for Independence Day. Look, I don't want any wounded guys in the parade, Trump said. This doesn't look good for me. He explained with distaste that at the Bastille Day Parade, there had been several formations of injured veterans, including wheelchair-bound soldiers who had lost limbs in battle. Kelly could not believe what he was hearing. Those are the heroes, he told Trump. In our society, there's only one group of people who are more heroic, and they are buried over in Arlington. Kelly did not mention that his own son, Robert, a lieutenant killed in action in Afghanistan, was among the dead interned there. Trump repeated, I don't want them. It doesn't look good for me. Subject came up again during the Oval Office briefing that included Trump, Kelly, and Paul Selva, an Air Force general, and the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. General Kelly joked in his deadpan way about the parade. Well, you know, General Selva is going to be in charge of organizing the 4th of July parade, he told the president. Trump did not understand that Kelly was being sarcastic. So what do you think of the parade, Trump asked Selva. Instead of telling Trump what he wanted to hear, Selva was forthright. I didn't grow up in the United States. I actually grew up in Portugal, Selva said. Portugal was a dictatorship, and parades were about showing the people who had the guns. And in this country, we don't do that. He added, it's not who we are. Even after this impassioned speech, Trump still did not get it. So you don't like the idea? He said, incredulous. No, Selva said, it's what dictators do. Rather amazingly, Trump actually responded to a request to comment for this article that appeared in The New Yorker. Describing the generals, he said, these were very untalented people, and once I realized it, I did not rely on them. 
I relied on the real generals and admirals within the system. The piece notes that it turned out the generals had rules, standards, and expertise, not blind loyalty. The president's loud complaint to John Kelly one day was typical. You effing generals, why can't you be like the German generals? Which generals, Kelly asked. The German generals in World War II, Trump responded. You do know that they tried to kill Hitler three times and almost pulled it off, Kelly said. But of course, Trump did not know that. No, 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 they were totally loyal to him, the president replied. Anyway, the article goes on to explain how it was that uh, General Mark Milley became the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Oddly enough, part of it had to do with the fact that General Mad Dog Mattis hated Mark Milley. Notes the piece, the decision to name Milley was a rare chance, as Trump sought, to get back at Mattis, whom he'd fallen out with. Trump would confirm this years later after falling out with both men, saying that he'd picked Milley only because Mattis could not stand him, had no respect for him, and would not recommend him. Yes, this is our stable genius former president in action. The article also explains how it was that uh, a couple years into the presidency, the so-called axis of adults that were reigning in Trump were all let go. Kelly, Mattis, H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor, and Rex Tillerson, Trump's first Secretary of State. They'd all served as guardrails in one way or another, and Trump hoped to replace them with more malleable figures. Anyway, by fall of 2019... Uh, nearly a year after Trump had first named him as the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Milley took over the position. Two weeks into his job, Milley sat at Trump's side in the meeting at the White House with congressional leaders to discuss a brewing crisis in the Middle East. Trump had again ordered the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Syria and effectively handed control of the territory over to the Syrian government and Russian military forces. The House, amid impeachment proceedings against the president for holding up nearly $400 million in security assistance to Ukraine, as leverage to demand an investigation of his Democratic opponent, passed a non-binding resolution rebuking Trump for the pullout. Even two-thirds of the House Republicans voted for it. At the meeting, Nancy Pelosi pointed out the vote against the president. Congratulations, Trump snapped sarcastically. He grew even angrier when Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer read out a warning from Mattis that leaving Syria could result in a resurgence of Islamic State. In response, Trump derided his former defense secretary as the world's most overrated general. You know why I fired him? I fired him because he wasn't tough enough. Eventually, Pelosi, in her frustration, stood and pointed at the president. All roads with you lead to Putin, she said. You gave Russia Ukraine and Syria. Trump shot back, you're just a politician, a third-rate politician. At that point, Steny Hoyer, the House Majority Leader and Pelosi's number two, said he'd had enough. This is not useful, he said, and stood up to leave with the speaker. We'll see you at the polls, Trump shouted as they walked out. When she exited the White House, Pelosi told reporters she left because Trump was having a meltdown. Hours later, Trump tweeted a White House photograph of Pelosi standing over him, apparently thinking it would prove that she was the one having a meltdown. Instead, the image went viral as an example of Pelosi confronting Trump. Milley could also be seen in the photograph, his hands clenched behind him, his head bowed low, looking as though he wanted to sink into the floor. That night, Milley called Representative Adam Smith, a Washington Democrat and chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, who had also been present. Milley asked, Is that the way these things normally go? As Smith later put it, that was the moment when Milley realized the boss might have a screw or two loose. There had been no honeymoon. Smith said from pretty much his first day on the job as chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he was very much aware of the fact that there was a challenge here that was not your normal challenge with a commander-in-chief. 
Anyway, I think I'm going to stop right there. The best part of this article is describing how what went down on January 6th was thwarted by the efforts of Mark Milley and a few others. But I think it might be smart to return to that in a future program and, and detail it uh, when we have a little more time. Maybe we can get Stephen Harper to, uh, to sound off on this, this excellent article. I'm going to jump at this point to another fine piece of writing. In this case, an article from a publication we, we do try to support. The Guardian. If you are not familiar with the work of The Guardian, my dear listener, I, I suggest that you, you should get acquainted with it. In this country, we consider The Washington Post and New York Times to be the, uh, you know, the papers of record. But sometimes when you need people to dig a little bit deeper and be a little less responsive to the powers that be and their wishes on how the news should be reported, you, you might want to consider this paper based in the UK. I want to quote from their article about Rusty Bowers. Rusty Bowers was, for 18 years, an Arizona lawmaker. For the past four years, he served as Speaker of Arizona's House of Representatives. But in July, he was shown the door by his own Republican Party. He lost his bid to stay in the legislature due to losing the primary contest, in which his opponent was endorsed by Donald Trump. His rival, David Farnsworth, made an unusual pitch to voters— The 2020 presidential election had not only been stolen from Trump, it was satanically snatched by the devil himself. Bowers was ousted as punishment. The Trump acolytes, who for the past two years have gained control of Arizona's Republican Party, wanted revenge for the powerful testimony he gave in June to the January 6th hearings, in which he revealed the pressure he was put under to overturn Arizona's election result. The piece notes that he had declined to use his power as leader of the House to invoke, quote, an arcane Arizonan law, unquote, whose text has never been found, that would allow the legislature to cast out the will of 3.4 million voters who had handed victory to Joe Biden and switch the outcome unilaterally to Donald Trump. Bowers has a word for that kind of thinking. The thought that if you don't do what we like, we will get rid of you, and march on and do it ourselves, that, to me, is fascism. So, come January, Bowers will no longer be an Arizona politician. He can now speak his mind, and he does. In an interview, he spoke his mind about the phone conversation he had with Trump and lawyer Rudy Giuliani at the height of the 2020 stolen election mayhem. He spoke about the clown circus of Trump loyalists who tried to bully him into subverting the election. He spoke his mind, too, about the very real dangers facing democracy in America today, to his astonishment, at the hands of his own party. He told author Ed Pilkington, the Constitution is hanging by a thread. The funny thing is, I always thought it would be the other guys. And it's my side. And it just rips at my heart that we would be the people who would surrender the Constitution in order to win an election. That blows my mind. Later in the piece, it's noted that in hindsight... Bowers now recognizes that the opening shots of the conflict were fired not around the 2020 presidential election, but earlier in the year, in the initial days of COVID. Trump fanatical Republicans in the Arizona House displayed in their anti-mask antics the same disdain for the rules, the same bullying style that was later to erupt in the stolen election furor. It was like a prep show, he said. 
Then came the first signs of Trump's defeat in the 2020 election. Bowers himself always expected the presidential race would be close. We were very aware that the demographic of women, 18 to 40, college-educated professional with small children, were not voting for Donald Trump, he said. When the results were confirmed and Biden had won by 10,454 votes, armed Trump supporters protested outside, outside counting centers in Maricopa County demanding, quote, audits, unquote. Bowers decided to take a look for himself. He gathered a group of trusted lawyers and went to investigate the counting process. I saw incredible amounts of protocols that were followed and signed off by volunteers, Democrats, Republicans, independents. Yes, Republicans were crying out loud, and they did it by the book. On November 22nd, two weeks after Biden had been declared the next president of the United States, Bowers received a call from the White House. Trump and Giuliani were on the line. After exchanging niceties, they got down to business. Giuliani said they had found 200,000 illegal immigrants and 60,000 dead people had voted in Arizona. We need to fix that, Giuliani told them. Bowers remembers how Trump and Giuliani played good cop and bad cop. Trump, you know, he wasn't angry. He wasn't threatening. He never said to me, I'm going to get you if you don't do this. Giuliani, he was the bulldog. In return, Bowers was polite but firm. He told the duo they had to provide hard evidence. I said, I'm not doing anything like this until you bring me something. Let's see it. I'm not going to have circus time at the House of Representatives. That's when Trump and Giuliani unveiled their second, even more incendiary proposal. They had heard there was a, quote, arcane Arizona law, unquote, that would allow the Republican-controlled legislature under Bowers to throw out Biden electors and send Trump alternatives to Congress in their place. It took a moment for the penny to drop. Bowers was being asked to overturn the election through dictate. I'm not a professor of constitutional law, but I get the idea. They want me to throw out the vote of my own people. I remember thinking, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. So now you're asking me to overthrow the vote? Bowers' response to the good cop, bad cop routine was categoric. He told them, I took an oath to the American Constitution and state constitution and its laws. Which one of those am I supposed to break? But the speaker continued to be lobbied right up to the evening of January 6th when John Eastman, the conservative law professor advising Trump on his attempted electoral coup, rang him and exhorted him to decertify the electors. Just do it and let the courts figure it all out, Eastman said. And I'll pause right there to note that says a lot that they were counting on the Trump judiciary to back whatever crazy things legislators might do. But Bowers was direct on that occasion, too, says the article. No, he told Eastman, taking away the fundamental right to vote, the idea the legislature could nullify your election, that's not conservative, that's fascist. And I'm not a fascist. As January 6th approached, the attacks on Bowers became personal. A Trump train of angry fanatics blaring their horns in pickup trucks festooned with MAGA flags turned up at his home in Mesa, some bearing digital boards proclaiming him to be a pedophile. To protect his family, he would step outside the house and confront the protesters. One man had three bars on his chest, signaling he was a member of the far-right militia group, the Three Percenters. The man was screaming obscenities and carrying a pistol. I had to get as close to him as I could to defend myself if he went for the gun, says Bowers. Moving ahead, in July, the executive committee of the Arizona Republican Party censured Bowers. Its chairman, Kelly Ward, a Trump devotee, said he was no longer a Republican in good standing. On August 2nd, Bowers was defeated in his primary by the Satan-evoking Farnsworth. 
That same night, the slate of election deniers standing for statewide positions won a clean sweep. Republican nominations for governor, a U.S. Senate seat, state attorney general, and secretary of state all went to enthusiastic backers of Trump and his 2020 attempted coup. They included Mark Fincham, who was present at the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th and continues to try and decertify Biden's presidency to this day. Fincham is now the Republican candidate for Secretary of State. Should he win in November, he would be in charge of Arizona's election administration through the 2024 presidential contest, one in which Trump has indicated he is likely to be competing. But for now, Bowers accepts that things are likely to get much worse before they get better. I asked him, at this moment, is the Republican Party in Arizona lost? Yeah, he said. They've invented a new way. It's a party that doesn't have any thought. It's all emotion. It's all revenge. It's all anger. That's all it is. He held his thumb and forefinger of his right hand so close together they were almost touching. The veneer of civilization is this thin, he said. It still exists. I haven't been hanged yet. But holy moly, this is just crazy. The place has lost its mind. Anyway, in the minute I have left, I would quote from a, a meme that's from ACT TV, from Christopher Titus. I guess it was the previous TV show. The quote is, It's awesome when the fascists come after you on social media claiming they aren't fascist while demanding their dear leader be reinstated as president and be allowed to commit treason with no consequences. To which was added, A dictionary would help these people. And lastly, we do have an election coming up in November. That's not that far away. The Washington Post notes that in states like Ohio, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, women have outnumbered men by 11% or more in new voter registrations since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade on June 24th. In Kansas, where a record number of voters rejected an anti-abortion referendum in August, 40% more women than men have newly registered. So... There's some hope here. That certainly does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. This has been Radio Parallax. I have been Douglas Everett, and we will see you next week. (music) 